Good morning, church. While the ushers uh, collect the offering, we're going to start with a short video. Our king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitlessness. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a well-trained of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign and a yoke is easy, and it's firm in light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You see, you can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Terror couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. I've seen that video probably a dozen times. And it never loses its power. The Reverend Dr. S.M. Lockridge wrote those words. And if that title isn't impressive enough, his, the S.M. stands for Shadrach Meshach, 
His father was a Baptist preacher. He was a Baptist preacher, and his name was Shadrach Meshach. So the Reverend Dr. Shadrach Meshach, I guess he was destined to, uh, to be a preacher, right? So this is our Christmas service. This is what we hear all about to celebrate Jesus, amen? And, uh, and we'll be having a Christmas Eve service, as you heard, but we're going to celebrate together this morning. And uh, I love in particular these words that we just heard. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. And Jesus, if that's my king, do you know him? And so that's the title of the message this morning, Do You Know Him? Not do you know about him, not do you have some information, not what have you heard, but do you know him? Have you, like David expresses, taste and see that the Lord is good? Do you know Jesus? And so, Father, right now, I pray that you do what only you can do, that you draw people unto you, that you open hearts and minds, God, that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, spirits to receive. Lord, penetrate our hearts, change us forever, God. Have your way in and through each of us. In the mighty and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, the incredible thing about Christmas is that Christ came not to give us everything we want, but instead to give us everything we need. I think it was the great theologian Mick Jagger who said something to that effect, wasn't it? You can't always get what you want. See, God knows better than we do what we need. And our longings, as we've touched on before here, can point us to our true desire. Isaiah 1.8 says, Come now, let us reason together. Like, let, let us think about this. Let us consider Says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That is why Jesus came. There's nothing you did, there's nothing you will do, there's nothing in your past that can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ if you put your life in his hands, if you put your trust and your faith in him. It's the promise of Christmas because Christ came to save us, to give us freedom from sin and death and self. He came because we needed a savior. We needed a teacher. We needed an example. And we needed a Lord and a king. And he came to and he wants to be all those things to us. To be the ultimate. To be the primary love and the priority in our lives. So no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, no matter why you're here today, whether someone invited you, whether it's tradition, you're here where God wants you to be at this moment, at this place in time, to hear with an open mind and an open heart the gospel message that Jesus came to give you new life. And the great thing about Christmas, the great thing about Christ, like Willie preached, Willie Preach, right? You were preaching, bro, right? You were preaching. You're up here. See, that's what happens when you're not here for a couple weeks. You come up, the joy of the Lord, man. But that gift that keeps on giving, that just overflow, that inexpressible joy. 
So we're going to read some scriptures this morning from the prophet Isaiah because no matter where we are in this journey, we can always go deeper. No matter how long we've been walking with Jesus, no matter how much love we have for him, if you don't know him, if you, if you don't trust him, that's the title of the message. Do you know him? And if you do know him, you can know him more and more and more. An infinite love, an infinite relationship. So Yahweh, uh, uh, sorry, Isaiah means Yahweh is salvation. He had a pretty long ministry, about 60 years, ranging from about 740 B.C. to 680 B.C. Interesting thing about the book of Isaiah, it has 66 chapters, much like the Bible. And the first 39 chapters, like the 39 books of the Old Testament, are filled with judgment against idolatrous and rebellious men. And the focus is on that. And the final 27 chapters, like the 27 books of the New Testament, focus on the message of hope. Isaiah's been called the Messianic prophet, the Paul of the Old Testament. And what he did is he spoke to the religious leaders, he spoke to those in power, and he warned them that rebellion against God would come at a cost. That persistence rebellion against God would come at a cost. And if they continued in idolatry, putting things above God and oppressing the poor, taking advantage of those people they're supposed to help, they would face God's judgment. I heard this definition of power recently, and I just thought, that is the most perfect definition of power I've ever heard. Power, to be used correctly, is to confront when appropriate those who have more power than you, and to defend when appropriate those who have less. I just thought, what a perfect expression of what power is. It's justice. And so as there's the hope that if they continued, that they would face God's judgment, but there's a hope that if they would turn from their rebellion, that God would meet them and that God would save them. C.S. Lewis says there are only two kinds of people in this world. Those who say to God, your will be done, and those two, in the end, God says, your will be done. See, he gives us ultimately what we want. I hear people say all the time they long for eternity with Jesus, and I look and I go, I don't know, you don't seem to really want to spend a lot of time with him right now. I mean, that eternity with him, you might want to get used to spending some time with him now. See, Israel was God's chosen people, and now there's a new Israel. God's people are those who are together in Christ. No more Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, males or female. There's, there will be a new Jerusalem, one defined by justice and peace to replace the old Jerusalem defined by idolatry and rebellion and injustice. And so we too long for and await this new Jerusalem. Christ is coming as a savior, God fulfilling promises. That's the first Christmas. And if people continue in, re in rebellion and idolatry and injustice, then when he comes again, he comes as a judge to judge those who persistently reject God and live in rebellion and self-centeredness. See, 700 years before Jesus was born, God starting started telling people about the miracle of Christmas. He used an ordinary man named Isaiah who loved God, who listened to him, and so God told him amazing things about the future. And one of the things he told him was about the coming Messiah. And throughout the book of Isaiah, God reveals all sorts of names and titles for the Messiah. 
We know that one of them is Emmanuel, Isaiah 7.14. The virgin will be with child and she will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Not God distant, but God came to be with us so we would understand him, so we would know him and love him and we would learn to trust him. And that's my hope for each one of us here this morning. We had the uh, event Friday night, and I read the scripture. I'm going to read it again, Isaiah 9, beginning verse 2. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. John 1.5 says, The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it or understood it. Can't put it in a box. Like we just heard, it's indescribable. You can't qualify it. It's beyond description. That light came to give us everything we want, to show us everything we need. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness for this time forth and forevermore. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. I want to discuss these things this morning. I want to explore what does God look like if he is those things to us as individuals And what does that look like collectively as a church that's trying to reach the city? What is the result of us authentically living this out together? And so what does a counselor do? A counselor gives advice, gives counsel. And so do we follow that counsel? How do we determine right from wrong? How do we we make sense of the world we live in? To what do we ascribe meaning and purpose and value? Is it just our, our, our own desires, our own inclinations that compete with everybody else's desires and their inclinations? How do we determine right from wrong? How do we, how do we set the path of life? Is he our counselor? Do we follow his precepts, his advice? Mighty God, Is he our king? Is he the ultimate power and authority in our lives, or are we? You know, people have said to me, well, maybe there's no God, and I'll say, for the sake of the conversation, I'll allow that. So you say, you can't know 100% if there's a God. Okay. So maybe there's no God. I don't believe that, but maybe there's no God. Maybe this is the God of the Bible. Maybe he is who he claims to be. But the one thing I am 100% sure of is that God is not some thing that we create and we define, some projection of ourself, some way that we can spiritualize the notion that we're really God, that we're in charge. Pride, the source of every sin, saying that I'm in control, which is rebellion against a perfect and holy God. A good father. You know, we hear the notion of God as a good father, and to some of us we understand that because we've had the blessing of a good father on earth. And we know that a father nurtures and cares for and protects and sacrifices, lives for those in his family. He's an example. But some people haven't had that. In fact, they've had the opposite. They've had fathers who are negligent or who are abusive. 
but deep down inside you still, I know, I know people that that's been an experience and, and they still long for that father, for that everlasting father, that father who's perfect, who will love them the way they need to be loved and God wants to be that father to us. The Bible says he loves us with an extravagant love. It says he rejoices over his children. I love that expression in Zephaniah. He rejoices over his children. Because you have it, you know, maybe the teenagers, it's tough to rejoice over sometimes, amen? But you see, you know, the little ones. All my kids, every one of the kids, I remember a time just watching them sleep, you know, and just stay sleeping, you know. When they're really little, you try to sneak out and not make noise so they don't wake up. I'd be like doing a ninja crawl on the on the on the you know, floor before I get up so they don't, right? But it's just this peace, just this, you rejoice over I'm like, thank you for this blessing, right? God looks at us like that. You know, sometimes when I felt so unlovable and in my prayer time, God would say, well, I don't love you because you're always lovable. Do you love your kids less when they do something that they're not supposed to? No, that love doesn't change. Because sometimes we feel unlovable and sometimes the enemy wants to convince us that we are unlovable, but Jesus died to prove that we are lovable. And the Prince of Peace, and I want to look, I want to look at this for a little bit this morning, the Prince of Peace. Because the dictionary definition of peace, it says this, it says freedom from disturbance, freedom from war or violence, the absence of chaos. So the idea of peace the worldly idea of peace is the absence of something bad. But the biblical idea of peace is the presence of something good. It's a very different sort of a peace. It's a peace we can have in the midst of great chaos. Everything can be falling apart around us and we can have peace from within us. It's the presence of Christ in our heart. The only hope of peace I'm amazed sometimes at the excuses Christians give me for why they're fighting some fight or some group or some something. Some people just like to fight. It's always a fight. Not only is it most of the time entirely ineffective, I don't know if you've ever argued or berated somebody into the kingdom. Anybody from a Facebook post changes anybody's mind ever about anything. Anybody name call anybody into the kingdom? See, most of the time it leads to arrogance and a lack of gentleness and grace and love. But it's hard to be peaceful sometimes, right? Isn't it? It's sort of an ideal, but it's tough. And Paul says, though, Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it's possible... And I'm the kind of guy, my personality, if 10,000 people think I'm, I'm the best and they love me and one person doesn't like me, that's the person I want to talk to. I mean, that's just, how, that's just my personality. But the reality is that some people aren't going to like us. I know there's pastors out there who think ministry is like a book deal and a speaking circuit, but for Jesus' ministry, he got a cross. Ministry is suffering. Entering in to people's lives at the darkest time is suffering. It's difficult. 
You know, we've had so many situations where we've helped people, and, and I'll share this story, and I'm sure the individual wouldn't care if I said his name, but I'm not going to say his name. But we had situations where we were trying to help somebody and help them build their life, and they actually stole stuff from us. They took things. We actually had to go to the pawn shop and buy stuff back because if you say it's stolen, then they're going to arrest the individual, and I wanted them to get help. And I remember saying, boy, somebody saying to me, you know, we probably shouldn't do that again. I mean, that cost, you know, look what it costs. And I said, who told you that when you help somebody, it's not supposed to cost you anything? You don't do it for the results. And I'm not talking about enabling. But you think the good Samaritan was, not only was he never going to get thanks or acknowledgement, the people he helped were still going to hate him. See, we're called to, as far as it depends on us, to live at peace with people. And Paul knows there's only so much we can do, but sometimes... The cause of the turmoil is us. Sometimes no matter what we do, people are going to be opposed to us and angry at us. And most of the time, it's usually God they're rebelling against. You ever get, you know, just sort of this backlash you don't even know where it's coming from? People are so angry. But other times we feed into it, myself included. See, right now everyone wants to divide and argue. They want to seek out what makes them different. Usually the root of that is insecurity. But you know what makes us the same? We're all broken. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all need Jesus Christ. It'd be nice if this was only people who didn't believe, like people outside the church acted this way, but sometimes in the church we can, we can behave worse in the world. We can be the most insular and judgmental and arrogant and condemning people and then we say, we want to invite people to church, and then they say, oh, that'd be the last place I would go. The first place they need to be would be the last place they would go because they're exchanges with people who claim the name of Christ. We should be the most graceful and loving and kind and generous. But often we feel attacked, so we fight back, or we defend, or we get angry. Reactions are never good because reactions are usually based on emotion instead of measured prayerful responses. And so I was praying, I'm going to, this is, I've, I've told you before, this is my therapy. It's much cheaper than therapy, and it's, you know, so just don't tell anybody this. This is a secret. So, but I'm praying because I just, you know, I had this, you know, kind of week, and even with the COVID thing, there's people saying, oh, you should have shut everything down. People saying, no, you shouldn't have shut anything down. And then, you know, just, and then, you know, that wasn't that big of a deal. But then just from the outside, just all kind of stuff. It was just this time where I was just praying. I'm like, Lord, I'm so tired. You know, I'm just tired of fighting. You ever get like that? Just so weary? Like, what is, life is not for the faint of heart, right? And, I, and I'm sort of just praying like, Lord, I am just so tired of fighting everybody. It seems like no matter where I look, somebody wants to fight. And I felt like, you ever have this prayer time with the Lord where he just sweeps your feet right out from under you? And he said this, and I was sharing with Pastor Sam the other day. He said, if you're looking for people to fight, you will never run out of people to fight. But if you look for people to love, you'll never run out of people to love. It, man, I just wept. It just broke me. I just wept. And I repented. I said, man, 
Because sometimes we want to fight. But here's the thing. Everybody expects you to fight with them. The world expects you, everybody expects to fight. You know what they don't respect? Expect radical love. Jesus says, pray for your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Go out of your way to be kind to even the people who've showed you the greatest unkindness. Not because you want them to come to your church or to think like you or to vote like you, but because that's what you ought to do because Jesus commanded you to. We qualify. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, and he told the whole story of the Good Samaritan because we, we had to understand, well, who is my neighbor? Who are the people I have to be nice to? I repented of my own heart condition because we're all created in the image of God. We all have need of Christ and we all fall short. And with Christians, peace is different, right? Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, it's beyond comprehension. It's not an intellectual thing. It doesn't make sense. We can't explain it. It will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I love that phrase. It'll guard your heart. It'll guard your mind. But we have to let it. The word for prince is sar, S-A-R. And normally when we think of prince, we think of the son of a king. But that's not what this word is designed to make us think about. The, the word literally means the head person, the captain, the governor, the prince, the man in charge. The Romans had a, a similar word. It was Caesar, C-S-A-R, Caesar, right? Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, Nero Caesar. That was their head guy. Gen then during the Bolshevik uh, Revolution, the Russians used the same thing. The Soviets had the Tsar, C-Z-A-R. Jesus is known in the Bible as the Tsar Shalom. And Shalom, we know, is the word for peace. In the Hebrew language, peace is a rich and powerful concept. It means a well-being, a happiness, a, a spring of joy. So Jesus then is the governor of well-being, the captain of happiness, the ruler of peace. He is the Sar Shalom. And Jesus' ministry, as you've heard me share before, was a series of invitations to go deeper. And so maybe you're here and you've never given your life over to Jesus. And so for you, the first and probably one of the most beautiful invitations of Scripture is when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest for your souls. I love that invitation because it denotes a weariness that is, it's so much more than a physical tiredness, right? It's a physical and a mental and an emotional and a spiritual. It's a deep exhaustion. It's a longing. It's a desire for rest, for, for an escape, for a comfortable reprieve. And Jesus says, come to me with that weariness, with that brokenness, and I will meet you and I will give you rest for your soul. Maybe you, some of you have never given your life over to Jesus. You're still trying to run the show. You're still your own God. Do you know him? Do you really know him? 
And if you do know him, then he's gonna invite you to know him more and more. Come to me, meet me. And then the Bible says, believe in me. Not just the facts. The Bible says the demons believe. A.W. Tozer said, the the devil is a better theologian than any of us and is a devil still. It's not just an intellectual belief. It's a heart belief. And then trust in the Lord with all your heart, the Bible says. And the word heart is not just an organ that pumps blood. It's not just the focus of our emotion. In Hebrew, the word heart is the source of everything. Your intellect, your affection, everything you are and everything you have, all all of your expressive humanity is in your heart. It means with every fiber of your being. Trust in the Lord. And Jesus says, follow me. Do what I do. Live the way I live. I invite you to a different way of life. I remember having a discussion with a guy one time, an Australian guy who was on a vacation. And he said, I will give you that maybe Jesus is a perfect human. Like maybe he's the perfect ethical standard. He, it seems like everything he taught was good. I just don't understand why he has to be the son of God. I said, if you can get to the place where you acknowledge Jesus as a perfect standard of human ethics, you just want to reject the notion that he's God, you don't have an intellectual problem, you just have a spiritual rebellion problem. And to his credit, he said, you're probably right. See, and then finally it says, abide in me. And I love that word, abide. Because it's not static, it's not one time, it's dynamic. It means to remain. It means to adjust yourself, to make sure you're in Christ. And if you're not, to to alter your path. The best definition, the best expression of the word abide means to make your home in. To make your very home with the presence of Christ. And then as an overflow of this, we make disciples. We help other people on the journey. Pastor Jamie and I, we've read in a book, and I quoted this. I forgot who said it, but somebody said, if you seek to build a church, you won't necessarily make disciples, but if you seek to make disciples, you'll always build a church. I like processes and procedures. I mean, I like that. I'm a, I'm a systems guy, but you know what? We complicate it. When, when, when they were looking for sort of a breakdown or a priority of rules, Jesus said, ready? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you love God with all your heart, with every fiber of your being, an overflow of that is going to change the way you treat people. And that's what builds a church. That's what discipleship is. That's what you want to perpetuate. The rest of the stuff, the ideology and the trying to berate and, and get people to just be clones of you, that stuff, let it die. Jesus wants to make clones of him. See, there truly is no better life. I say it all the time from a guy who tried to pursue meaning and value and pleasure and in everything else in the world, there is no better life. Living in his will, here and now, and forever in eternity. So these questions, I want you to go deeper. The first question is, do you know him? But then the next question is, do you love him? And then if you say yes to those questions, then the final question would be, do you trust him? I believe with my heart of hearts to know him is to love him and to love him is to trust him. 
And for those of us who know him and love him, we're called to be the church. And so Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, multicultural, multi-ethnic, obviously melting part of really society, he made these observations. I want to reflect on them. I want to extend them a, a bit about what it looks like to be the church that represents what Christ calls us to do, gospel witness in the city. And the first thing he said we ought to be focusing on is reordering the loves of our heart with the gospel. And I love that. Because not only the best way to gauge our own spirituality, but to look at where other people are and to begin to engage them is to determine what somebody worships. And with Facebook, it's not really hard. People can say all kind of stuff, but it takes you like five minutes to look and see what a priority in someone's life is. What do they value above all else? And as from an evangelism standpoint, that's where I like to have dialogue because is it ultimately fulfilling you? I've said before, I think a couple weeks ago, C.S. Lewis, brilliant intellect, Oxford and Cambridge professor, two greatest academic institutions throughout history. And for all his intellectual arguments for the existence of God, to him, the most compelling was the longing for God, was the appetite for God. Reordering the loves of our heart with the gospel, putting Christ first in all things in our own lives, in our decisions, our relationship, our time, our resources, finding our meaning and purpose, not in our will, but in his will for our lives. We're inviting people into this joyful experience with Christ. Willie had the joy this morning. Some people are like, hey, when I go to my church, I'm filled with joy. Man, it's awesome. I preached to everybody, oh, Jesus is first in my life. Thank you, Jesus, for this Corvette. You know, like, reorder the priority of your heart with the gospel. We think of idolatry as like worshiping statues. statues. The statues were just little, little representations of just expressions of our own wanting to be God. The statues were just a way to spiritualize and so it didn't seem so obvious to be like, I'm God, I make my own decisions. To be like, I consult the statue. The statue tells me to make the, come on. Idolatry is making sometimes important things ultimately, ultimate things. It's a disorder of priorities. And he says this, loving the city in word and deed. Through prayer, through service. Do we pray for the city? Do we pray for our families, do we pray? Brothers, do we serve them with no strings attached? Not serving them so they'll come to this event or so. No, just serving them, just loving on them because we're supposed to and because people need to be loved on. People really need to be loved on. You know, you know how, how easy it is? You know how often I see somebody and, and I'll just, you know, say hello or give them a hug or just express and immediately they're just in tears. I mean, because people, people are broken and they're hurting. The world beats us up, doesn't it? Contextualizing and culturally engaging without compromise. You can stand on truth. Truth isn't dependent on what you think about it. 
Truth stands on its own. It, 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 it's, it'll defend itself. It's grounding and it's foundational. It doesn't need us to defend it. We can stand on truth. It's not our truth. It's truth. Yes. And we can still be culturally relevant and contextualizing and engaging and be open to dialogue like Paul and Mars Hill who could have said, you're all heathens, you're all lost, you have no idea what you're talking about, you're all going to hell. And instead he said, I see you have a monument here to an unknown God. Let me take you from what you know about the spiritual to what you need to know. Let me explain to you who the one true God is. To have dialogue without arrogance, with gentleness and with grace and with humility. To stand on the truth of our convictions, but do so in a respectful way. I've said before, so many times people are more concerned with being right than righteous, winning an argument than winning a soul. I've heard some people that I may agree with what they said, but it's like, bro, you're a jerk. Can, I, can you say that? Right? Okay, the Bible, listen, I'll talk to me. There's some worse things that Jesus says to people in there. Get behind me, Satan, I think he said to Peter. Preaching to both Christians and non-Christians at the same time because we expect non-believers to be present with us constantly, not using pious, churchy, insider language. And sometimes we do it out of habit, but other times, and you always meet people, and I've met you know, some brilliant people, some well-known people, and they talk like normal people because the point of communication is so somebody understands you. That's kind of how that works. And then you run into other people and they use words and you're just like, dude, like, just, nobody understands what you're saying right now. Like, everybody gets it. You're smart. Like, just stop. You know how many people like that? It's like, just slow your roll. We get it. You're smart. Good. Now communicate in a way that people can understand you. Sometimes people do that because it makes them feel better than. Because their identity isn't in Christ, but it's in some perception of who they are, or what they've accomplished, or what they have. How about this? Speaking about non-Christians when they're present, exactly the way we would talk to them. I mean, speaking about them when they're not here, exactly the way we talk about when, them, when they are here. Because here's the thing, if you're always like, you know, oh, you know, this, you know like, you, people in the church will look at people in the world and be like, you see what they're doing in the all critical spirit, mean-spirited stuff? And you know, you think that doesn't come out when you're talking to a non-Christian. You think you just disguise that? No, it, it flows. We're all created in the image of God, every single human being. We're all in need of God's grace, every single human being. We're all broken, every single human being. The result of sin in the garden, the very first thing, was we were naked and we were ashamed, so we hid. We had an identity crisis. We knew there was something wrong. There was something we longed for. There was something we were connected to that we're no longer connected to. We still feel that today. And Christ came so we never have to feel that again. And this is a big one. Major on the majors. People love to talk about the things where everybody sees things different. And I, listen, dialogue's fun, but sometimes it's not fun. And I've had conversations with people, and I've said before, just before we begin this conversation, because I like dialogue, I like debate, it's fun, you know, it's, can be, it can sharpen people. I'll say, just before we begin, is this so important that it's going to keep people out of heaven? And if they say no, I'll say, okay, so. Is it a big deal? Maybe, but how big of a deal could it be? Major on the majors. 
Don't find the things that we bicker and divide over constantly. Because if you're looking for somebody to fight, if you're looking for something to argue about, if you're looking for something to divide about, you'll always find it. About this emphasis on surmounting racial barriers and forming a loving multi-ethnic community. Do we really try? I mean, really try to understand the experiences of somebody different than us. To understand the reality, the world of somebody that looks like or votes like or comes from a different socioeconomic background. You know, there was a, if you study the missions movement throughout history, there was a big thing where Christians who attempted to do a good thing thought that they had to export Western culture along with the gospel. And they would try to take people's identities and make them Western identities. And that's not, the gospel is not a Western identity by any means. Can we, can we celebrate our differences? Can we listen to and hear without degrading and, and drawing lines, experiences that people have had? Loving our neighbors through deeds of mercy and justice. Man, If anybody should be merciful and just, it's those of us who've received mercy and who demand justice. An emphasis on both deep involvement in church and Christian community with an integration of faith and work in the public sectors. In other words, be a Christian here on Sunday, but don't just be a Christian here on Sunday. Integrate your faith with your workplace. The only difference between the secular and the sacred is the secular just doesn't know it's sacred. There's nothing beyond God's grasp. There's nothing that's not his. Practicing servant leadership with an openness to ideas and criticism rather than coercive, abusive, top-down leadership. So sad the experiences so many people have had in church. I am so grateful Pastor Jamie, 33 years of friendship. You can clap for that. Anybody who's friends with me for 33 years, they deserve some applause. But sometimes it's isolating in leadership because people don't want to speak the truth. Nobody wants to say anything. You need somebody that can, that can check you, that can say, hey, bro, let me point this out. The day I think I'm in control of this place, get rid of me. It's his church, it's your church, it's our church. We have a team of elders, we have a team of deacons, we have a business board, and we have pastors who meet together or pray together that will speak the truth in love. And it's easy sometimes to, you know, in in an attempt to lead well, to get a little too aggressive or a little too, and Jamie has to be like, hey, I know your result's driven, but we're people. It's a people thing, right? Thank God for that. That makes us all better because we're a team. People think of leaders and they think of, you know, bosses that are just abusive, and, you know, because that's been their experience. Jesus was a servant leader. Give, serve, die, put others above yourself. That's what real, real leadership looks like. Jeremiah 2.13 says this. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, 
And they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They've forsaken me, the spring of water. They've forgotten God. They've forgotten their source. And instead, they've sought out other ways, broken ways, ways where living water doesn't exist, where they're still thirsty. They've become reliant upon themselves and their own methods and their therapy or their chemical or their relational We will never find lasting peace apart from Christ. And for some of us, this is a year unlike any other year in which we need peace, which was the promise of God's Christmas present to us. Ask the worship team to make their way up. That unto us a child would be born, a son who would be given those whose name would be given wonderful counselor, mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. See, this peace is the climax of Isaiah's promise, our hope in Christ. The only hope anyone can have. And I want you to fully understand it today. Because if you embrace this, if you understand this, you will see Christ differently than you ever have and it will change everything in your life. He wasn't just an ethical standard. He was the embodiment of justice and truth and grace and mercy and love and holiness and perfection. See, we heard what the angels said when they announced the birth of Jesus and there were shepherds living in the fields nearby keeping watch over their flocks. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. Later on in verse 16, side of verse 15, it says, When the angels had left them and gone to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. Listen to verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. My prayer this Christmas and always is that we would ponder, that we would recognize, that we would treasure who Christ is, what he's done, and we would reflect on and ponder the work of God in our lives and would be prayerful in serving others with the hope we have in Jesus. Amen.